Good morning, CPC. At this time, we're going to release the kiddos, but only the kiddos up through kindergarten, or if you're a part of Sunshine Singers. So if you can figure that out, good luck. And we're going to head out toward the back. Well, I hope that you guys all had a most wonderful Thanksgiving and that you guys all had good times with families and, and friends and that you ate as much as I did, at least. And uh, I spent some time down in Louisville with my family for Thanksgiving, and I just have to say that I absolutely love Thanksgiving. It's my favorite holiday because you just get to sit around with friends and family and eat and watch football. Um, there's no expectations. There's no presence. It's not 10 degrees outside quite yet. Um, it's a good, good time. Um, Thanksgiving is also great because people tend to talk less when their mouths are full of food. Um, we all have that one relative. Um, you know you do. Uh, I have a family member who shall not be named um, for fear of them hearing this later on on our website. Um, but uh, every holiday we get together, they find a way to to work in something about church. They always have a comment for me about church because I guess they think that I work at a church and so I should hear about something church-related. Uh, but on Thursday, I actually got to hear a joke. So this was, it was a kind of a pleasant surprise. And so I thought I'd bring the joke to you. Why can't you take a turkey to church? Why can't you take a turkey to church? That was the question that was asked of me Thanksgiving dinner. The answer, because they use foul language. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. This is... This is my life. So last Sunday, we finished up our series on the parables. And today we find ourselves in a new series that we're calling the Songs of Christmas. And this series is going to carry us up to Christmas Eve. We're going to look at some of the songs that we find in Scripture that point toward Christmas, that point toward this Messiah And just real quick, as an aside, I want to preface everything I say this morning with the reality that today's song, notice I'm using air quotes, for today's song we had to dig a little bit to come up with a song that fit within our series. And I couldn't help but think that it's more than a coincidence that sometimes on these more challenging weeks that Jerry isn't here. And so with that said, we're going to look at some of the songs that point us toward December 25th, that point us toward the Messiah, the coming of a baby born in a manger that will rescue us all. Before we look at our text for this morning, I just want to talk just a little bit about Advent. What is Advent? Advent's not just a fancy sort of spiritual sounding word that we can use interchangeably with Christmas or the holidays. Traditionally, Advent is the season before Christmas. Advent's a season that's meant to help us prepare for Christmas. Traditionally, Advent was really a time of repentance as you led up to Christmas. But that doesn't always play too well with songs of sleigh bells and mistletoe and jolly old Saint Nick. So you don't hear about that part of it often. But the idea behind Advent is that if you believe the king of heaven and earth is arriving then you would ask yourself, how would we prepare our hearts for that? And so for the next four weeks leading us into Christmas, we find ourselves in this period of preparation, this period of anticipation, and this period of waiting. Now there's also something else that's significant about Advent. It helps us mark time. 
It helps us mark time. We have this thing in the church, Big C Church, called the liturgical calendar. And it's basically the way we mark the year. We mark the year by the life of Christ. And Jerry mentioned last week that last Sunday was actually the end of our year. And today is the beginning of a new year. And we look and we wait with Advent. We start that with Advent. Advent prepares us and leads us up to Christmas. And we celebrate the birth of Christ. And then we look at Epiphany, which is our acknowledging that Christ is the King. And then we move into Lent, which is another period of preparation, which takes us up to Easter. And we recognize the death and resurrection of Christ. And that takes us into Pentecost. These are all markers of time for us. And we mark time by the life of Christ. And the reason that we do that is because if we mark time by the life of Christ, we should be reminded of the hope that we have in Christ. And so with that, let's look at our text this morning. It's Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. So if you have your Bible, you can follow along in your Bible, or if you have an app on your phone, or the words will be on the screen. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. And this is where we move into our song or our poem. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. As warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So, just a little context for us this morning, a little context for this passage, a little background. Because most of us are probably familiar with this passage because of verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. We're familiar with that. And so when we read this passage, we immediately think of Jesus and we make that our context for the whole thing. But what was really going on with God's people that Isaiah gives us these words? And so that's what we're going to look at for a minute. Well, as usual, it's not looking good for Israel. And this kind of tends to be the story of God's people, doesn't it? Think about it. From the very beginning, Adam and Eve screw things up in the, in the garden and they're cast out and things are made difficult for them. Only six chapters later in Genesis, we find that things get really, really bad and we run into a guy named Noah and there's a flood. And we know that that doesn't end in well for anyone other than Noah and his family. And we fast forward a little bit more and the Jews are enslaved in Egypt And they're led out of Egypt by Moses and find themselves in a promised land where everything should be okay. 
right? Everything should be good from now on. And they have King Saul and they have King David and things are good until we get to this part of the story. Because they have northern neighbors called the Assyrians. And the Assyrians are going to make their way down into Israel. And the Assyrians are not kind people. They overtake with power and they take what they want. And they do it in cruel ways. And so this is where we find ourselves in this passage. The Assyrians are knocking at Israel's door. They've overtaken the northern lands that, that Isaiah mentions. Zebulun and Naphtali. Two quick notes. One, the capital of Assyria was a town named Nineveh. If you aren't familiar with that, you might be reminded of a guy named Jonah in the Old Testament. And God comes to Jonah and tells Jonah, you need to go to Nineveh. And Jonah is reluctant. And for good reason. Because it's the capital of Assyria. It's not a kind place. The two towns that Assyria has overtaken in Israel, Zebulun and Naphtali, you might be familiar with a little town in Zebulun called Nazareth, which is where Jesus lives out his days. Zebulun and Naphtali were the lands in Galilee where Jesus lived his life. So God's people once again find themselves under the control of someone else. Assyria has moved in and they answer to them. They're beaten down and they're suffering and Isaiah tells them and gives them these words. He says, there's a light in the darkness. Your burden will be lifted. The yoke will be shattered. Every, he says every warrior's, but he's talking about the Assyrians. Every Assyrian's boot that's been used in battle will be fuel for a fire. For a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be his. He will reign on David's throne with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. Those would be welcomed words if you were being oppressed and you were being overtaken by a big, powerful nation. They would be welcomed words for a people who are waiting, a people waiting for help, a people waiting for rescue. And that leads us to a little discussion on waiting. Waiting's not fun. I think we all agree with that. Waiting is no fun. We don't like to wait. We do everything that we can to avoid waiting. In fact, I think this starts at an early age, right? I bet a lot of you have been on road trips with children, waiting is not something we do well. You get 20 minutes into the trip and from the back seat you begin to hear, are we there yet? Are we there yet? No, we have five more hours to go. We're not there yet. Or even children thinking about Christmas. When's it going to be Christmas? When's it going to be Christmas? When's it going to be Christmas Eve? When can I open my presents? There's this anticipation. In my house, for some reason, it was always birthdays. Particularly when Emma was young, she would always say, Dad, when's my birthday? When's my birthday coming? And I'd say, Emma, we just had your birthday last week, honey. Like you have a whole nother year to get to your birthday. And so in thinking about waiting, particularly waiting early in life, uh, there was a video that, that came to my mind and I wanted to share it with you guys this morning. So take a look at this. Sit in that chair. All right, here's the deal. Marshmallow, for you. You can either wait, and I'll give you another one if you wait, or you can eat it now. When I come back, I'll give you two, another one, so then you'll have two. But stay in here and stay in the chair till I come back, okay? okay. All right.
I'm gonna go do something and then I'll come back. It smells yummy. So it's up to you. You can have it now or you can wait. Okay? I'll be back. Stay in the chair, okay? Okay. So I'm gonna leave and then I'll come back, okay? So you can either eat it right now or you can wait. Either way, okay? Okay. <laughs> How'd you do? Did you do good? You did? Yeah. You wanted to eat it, didn't you? Yeah. So did I tell you I'd give you another one? Okay, now you can have both. You need them. <laughs> this, uh, this aversion that we have to waiting starts early in us. And really, as adults, we're, we're no better. As adults, we, we don't like to wait in lines. We get frustrated when uh, the internet is too slow. We get frustrated when we pull up to Starbucks and there's a long line to wait in the drive-thru. And we get more frustrated when we receive that delicious Starbucks only to find out that it's about a thousand degrees and you have to wait for it to cool down to be able to drink it. We get riled up when food takes too long to come to us at a restaurant or when we have to heat something up in the microwave and it takes too long. Or maybe this morning on your way to church you had to wait on your significant other and it got under your skin. Surely that wasn't the ladies, so come on guys, step up your game. What about, and these are a couple of my own personal struggles with waiting, so I'm going to be vulnerable with you guys for a minute. What about the car that's sitting, sitting in front of you at a green light? Or my biggest personal struggle, waiting online with the cable company. See, you guys don't understand we don't like to wait. What about the doctor's office? This one's probably the most universal, right? There's a room in the doctor's office called the waiting room. And we want 
we really don't want anything to do with it. And there's magazines, and we pick up a magazine, and we pretend to be interested in the magazine, but really all we're doing is looking at the magazine, looking over top of it, and looking at everybody else in the waiting room, trying to figure out why they're there. Why are they there? Oh, they don't look good. And then, finally, somebody comes out from behind a door, and they call your name, and you stand up, and you feel pretty good about yourself, and you look around the room and think, they finally called my name. And you get ushered into yet another room that just is smaller, and it's a waiting room. We don't like to wait. And then there are moments in our lives when all of a sudden we're forced to wait, which is a little bit of a different situation. There are times we're forced to wait against our will. I think of maybe the times that some of us are forced to wait in starting a family. And so you're forced to wait in the hope of a pregnancy. I think of the times that maybe you're waiting on the doctor's report. You've had the test and you've had the scan and now you have to wait for the results. You're waiting for somebody to give you an answer that you don't already have or you're waiting for a court date or you're waiting for a conversation. You're waiting for that prodigal daughter or that prodigal son to return or you're waiting for a friend to say, I'm sorry. Or maybe you're waiting for God to answer your prayers. There are these moments when waiting is forced upon us and it's hard to know how to handle that. It's hard to know how to deal with that. Because what do we do while we wait? What do we do in the waiting? How do we wait and not just completely give up? How do we wait in hope? And I have a feeling that this is a question that was likely on the hearts and the minds of God's people when we see them in this passage. As the Assyrians have moved in, it's probably a question on their mind. How do we wait and not just completely give up? How do we wait and hope that God is going to come and rescue? I imagine it was likely a question on the hearts and minds of God's people as they were slaves in Egypt. How long are we going to be slaves? When is God going to show up? And I think it was probably likely on the minds of God's people in the first century at the time of Jesus' birth because they lived under Roman rule. And I'm sure they wondered, how long is this going to happen? Because we want to go back to the glory days of what it was like when we lived under King David. How do we wait and hope? How do we not just give up? How long till God comes through? How long till God does what he said he was going to do? There were actually people in the first century who were calculating. They were trying to come up with dates as to when God was going to come and when God was going to show up and do what he said he was going to do which is so vastly different than today, isn't it? People saying, we think this is the time that God is going to do something. But regardless of what people thought or what they speculated, they were waiting. They were waiting for this child that Isaiah talks about, for this son that will reign on David's throne. They were waiting to be rescued, just like God's people were waiting on rescue here in this passage. I think the Bible shows us some different responses to, to waiting. And I think there's some things that we can, be, we can learn from those responses. Particularly in the first century, around the time of Jesus' birth. One way to respond to waiting is with despair, as I mentioned. It's just giving up, throwing your hands up and saying, you know what, it's not going to happen. God said he was going to do this and do that, and he was going to restore, and he was going to save And yeah, we've come back from Babylon and we're not in exile anymore. And yeah, we have a temple, but Herod built the temple. 
and we don't really like or trust Herod, but we're still under Roman rule and oppression, and that's not the way it's supposed to be for us. So there were those who said in the first century, forget it, I give up. None of this is true, it's over. They just fall into despair. Another response to waiting might be that sometimes you just have to take matters into your own hands. And in the first century, these were the zealots. Think about a guy named Saul turned Paul, who was willing to kill. That's what we're talking about here. Zealots were the ones who were always looking, always ready to pick a fight with the Romans. Why would you pick a fight with the Romans? Because in the back of their minds, they thought that maybe, just maybe, if we pick a fight with Rome, then maybe we would force God's hand and God would have to step in and help us out. Because he wouldn't let us be slaughtered by Rome, right? And so some, when faced with waiting, simply take matters into their own hands in hopes that they're going to be a catalyst to end the waiting. And in that regard, I think about a guy named Judas, who maybe was trying to force God's hand to do something, to end the waiting. Now, a third response to waiting is that an end just isn't deserved. We don't deserve to end this waiting. We deserve to wait. And this would have been maybe the response of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were convinced that God is not acting because they had not been good enough. The Pharisees were the kind of people that would say, you know what, God is going to do what God said he's going to do, but he's going to do it once we've been obedient enough. Once we've followed the law to the letter. Once we've been faithful enough. Once we've been deserving enough. And I think that these three groups are very much alive and well today. I think when we feel forgotten, we typically fall into one of these three categories. When we find ourselves waiting, we typically fall into one of these three categories. We either say, I give up, it's not happening. Or we say, you know what? If it's going to happen, it's because I do something about it. Sometimes you just have to act. And others say, I know why this isn't happening. It's not happening because I don't read my Bible enough. I didn't do that morning devotional that I said I was going to do. I said I was going to fast for three days. And two hours in, I had a smoothie. And then I realized the smoothie violated the rules of the fasting. And I didn't do it right. I'll do it right next time. And we convince ourselves that there has to be a reason for our waiting. But I would say that sometimes we, we need to wait. Sometimes we need to just sit. As I was thinking about this idea of waiting, this idea of sitting, I was reminded of another guy in Scripture named Moses. Moses grew up in Egypt. And for 40 years, he watched his people as slaves in Egypt. And at age 40, Moses had had just about enough. And he looked over and he saw an Egyptian beating one of his people, beating a fellow Jew. And he had had enough. And anger got the best of him and he went over and he killed the Egyptian. And so, fearing his life, he left. He went away to some faraway land and became a shepherd. Which is a profession that allowed you the opportunity to hide. It allowed you the opportunity to wait it out. And that's what Moses did for 40 more years. He was a shepherd in the middle of nowhere, waiting it out. At age 80, 
Moses, while he's out shepherding, sees a bush that's on fire, but it's not being burnt. And he says, that's strange. And he walks over to the bush. And he begins having a conversation with God. And this is what God tells Moses. I've watched my people suffer. I've heard them cry at night as they fall to sleep. I've heard them cry out as they're whipped and as they're beaten. I know their hurts and I know their sufferings and I have come to deliver them. And most of us know the rest of the story. God uses Moses to do just that, deliver his people, to rescue them. And so I think about God's people. I think about the fact that they were slaves in a foreign land, a land that's owned by the Pharaoh, that's not their own. And they couldn't find God. They looked and they couldn't find him and they were waiting, seemingly. And how does that story end? The slaves are freed and they live in a promised land with a tabernacle in their midst where God dwells among them. And I thought about the parallel for us this morning in Advent as we look ahead. We wait in anticipation just as the Jews in Exodus. We wait in hope for freedom as they waited in hope for freedom. We wait in hope for this promised land as they waited in hope for the promised land. We wait in hope for the miracle of Emmanuel, for the reality of God with us just as they had a tabernacle and God dwelt among them. The story begins in darkness, but as we go through Advent, it ends in light. It begins in slavery, but ends in freedom. It begins with the seemingly absent God and ends with Emmanuel, God with us. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the times that we wait. Sometimes waiting isn't easy, but sometimes waiting is just what we need in order to see how you are working. Father, as your church, give us strength, give us wisdom, give us the strength to wait on you. But let us not use waiting as an excuse to not be the church that you've called us to be. Amen.